Today's Bible reading is from Acts 11, verse 19 to 26, and Acts 13, verses 1 to 4. Now those of you who had been scattered, the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, leading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simone and Niger, um, Lucius and of Cyrene, Manian and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Lord Spirit, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Thank you, Adele. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be gathered together as God's people this morning. Uh, last week, Kim and I had the privilege of going to a church planting conference, and we had to suffer for Jesus at Manly Beach. Um, we know it's not Australia's most livable city, um, but it's still nice to be at Manly Beach. It's a beautiful spot. And we had the privilege of meeting with a whole bunch of other young church planters, people that have just planted a church or people that are looking to plant a church. And it was really great just to talk to them about what's going on in their church and, and what they're grateful to God for. And on a number of occasions, people asked us, what are you most uh, joyful about and grateful about uh, with the start of Follow Baptist Church? And it's kind of hard to know where to start. There's so many great things happening and it's really exciting. And we're very joyful and grateful to God for all that he's doing. But the one thing I shared is that I've been really blown away by how quickly this church feels like a community. And I really love that. I I crave community. I love community. And it's great that, you know, just over two months ago, many of you uh, didn't really even know each other, but already when you walk into the church, it's starting to feel like community as relationship is starting to go deeper. And I really love that. It's not built around hobbies. It's not built around personalities. It's not built around nationalities. It's not built around upbringing. It's built around our common connection in Jesus Christ. And I love the way that we're connected in Christ. Last week we had our first bring and share lunch. And it was a great chance to bring food and to hang around around food at lunchtime and get to know each other at a, at a deeper level. And I love that there was so much multicultural food here last week. Um, you know, before this church started, we really prayed that we would be a multicultural church. Uh, three reasons for that, really. Number one, uh, we're in an increasingly multicultural area. And so we want our church to reflect the community around us. Uh, the second reason, an even bigger reason, is that one day in heaven, we're going to be there with every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and together we're going to be bowing before the King of Kings. As you too says, where all the colours blend into one. 
It's going to be a beautiful place. But the third reason we really wanted a multicultural church is because we knew that we would have bring and share lunches. And our Indian brothers and sisters, they bring the curry and it's just beautiful. And last week there was a casserole that had meat in it mixed with hot chips in the casserole. I mean, I love meat and I love hot chips, but I've never thought about putting meat and hot chips in a casserole. That's genius. Australian culture doesn't think like that. We think just throw a sausage on the barbie and a bit of sauce. But I just love the fact that we had a meat and hot chip casserole last week. Put your hand up if you bought that. Don't be shy now. Okay, you know who you are. We're very grateful to God for you. Thank you for that. Last week was a great day. The sun was beautiful. The food was beautiful. But for me, the most beautiful thing was seeing people connect together. And seeing relationship go to a deeper level, we love that, we crave that. And it would be so tempting over the years to come to just get comfortable with a a nice, warm, friendly community where we just meet together and it's like a holy huddle. And as, as nice as that is, the biggest prayer of my heart and the truth is that I want some of you to leave. I want some of you to go. I want some of you to be sent. Now, I'm not talking about leaving because there's a cooler church down the road with a pastor who doesn't want you to leave. Uh, I'm not talking about going somewhere else because you don't like the music, it's too loud, it's too soft, it's too many hymns, there's not enough hymns. I'm not talking about leaving because the preacher talks too long or not long enough or the air conditioner's too cold or not cold enough. I'm not talking about leaving because church doesn't meet our every need. We've got to become more mature than that. We've got to be more robust than that as a community. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want to leave because of fickle reasons. You know, church services, we call them church services. But sometimes I wonder whether that's the right terminology. You know, when I get customer service, I expect someone to serve me with a smile, promptly, when I want it. When I get room service, which I never ever do, by the way, but if I ever did, I imagine that I would pick up the phone and say, hey, I want this food and I want it at this time. And then they would come down and they would knock on my door and I would go to the door and they would give me my food and it would be prepared just as I wanted it. That's, that's room service. On the plane last week, we had in-flight service. And Kim and I, we would just sit down in our seat on the plane and we would wait for the flight attendant to come down the aisle with that magical trolley with all the food on it. And we could choose anything we wanted off that trolley. And so we'd just sit back and wait for them to serve us. And they even called us sir and madam. I mean, we felt like royalty for an hour. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but plain food is so much better than it used to be. Have you ever noticed that? I remember when I first had plain food a few years ago, I took off the plastic packet and then I started eating it and I thought I hadn't taken the packet off because it just tasted the same as the packet would taste. But these days it's a little bit fancy. And so I actually enjoyed the lunch, but I just sat back and Sir Luke and Madam Kim were served their lunch on the plane and then we landed back to reality. That's customer service. That's in-flight service. But it seems to me that many people treat church just like that. That we come to church, we gather together, and as far as we're concerned, it's a service. We come, we want to be waited on, we want uh, everything as, as we want it, and when the goods and services don't actually meet our expectations, we chuff off to the next church, and then the next church, and then the next church, never realising that the church isn't the problem. The problem's us. You see, church is not a service. It's a community of people united around the cross, following in the footsteps of a servant king who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
and give my life as a ransom for many. We're part of a church which is part of a wider worldwide body. And this body, and everyone in this body has a role to play. And when we don't play an active role in the body of Christ, when we get offended too easily, when we church hop and church shop and never settle in a home, we actually rob ourselves of the opportunities to mature, the opportunities to go through every season. Every church has seasons. There's exciting seasons. And I think for us, we're in an exciting season. Just started, things are taking off. We're looking at getting into our community to be a blessing, to make a difference. I mean, youth started on Friday night. Who went to youth? Who, who liked youth? Excellent. Did Abel behave himself? Dumb question, yes. Of course he didn't. Youth kicking off, young adults kicking off. Uh, all sorts of things are starting to happen. We're starting to have an impact in our community. And it's really exciting. We're in a great season as a church. But there's no doubt there will be seasons in the life of this church that are more difficult. There are up seasons, there are down seasons, there are in-between seasons. And as we persevere in the ups and the downs and the in-betweens, God does something in our lives and in our hearts to bring us to a greater level of maturity. So I'm not talking about leaving because we want greater service. I'm talking about wanting some of us to leave because we'll be sent by the Holy Spirit. I mean, many of us will stay and we'll be sent into our community. That's a wonderful thing. But I hope and pray that God will put on the hearts of some people here this morning that there are places overseas that need missionaries. There are places interstate that need missionaries. And I hope that God calls and sends some of you. And I guarantee you the day we send you, we won't moan. We won't go, oh no, we're going to miss it. We will rejoice that God is sending people to this country and to the nations of the world. I hope and pray that some people will be called to move geographically into other churches where they can be a blessing in other suburbs. I hope and pray that some of you here today will be part of our next church plant, that we'll send you out to another area which needs a church and you'll be part of a team that is a blessing in that place. You see, the Bible from front cover to back cover is about a group of people who are willing to go. They're willing to leave. They're willing to be sent for the sake of the gospel. I really hope that the majority of us aren't just attending here because it's convenient. I really hope and pray that the majority of us are here because it's coming from a deep-seated gospel desire to be used by God to build something that will be transformational in this region and beyond for years to come. I hope and pray that you're here because God's placed you here and that you're willing to be used by God to see people come to know him. That's why we exist, to be his witnesses. And so let's recap what we've gone through so far in the book of Acts. The start of Acts, Jesus ascended to heaven and then he, his followers were given the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they were promised that Jesus would be with them till the end of the age, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit who would give them power to be his witnesses to all of creation. We heard a few weeks ago that the people of God after Pentecost sort of hung around in Jerusalem, got a bit comfortable for a couple of years. But then we see persecution commence and persecution became the catalyst for the Great Commission to start to happen. You see, persecution was designed by the persecutors to destroy the church, but in God's sovereignty and his power, he turned that upside down and used persecution as an agent of incredible growth, as people scattered, 
And as they scattered, everywhere they went, they just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They had Jesus in their heart and they had Jesus on their lips. It was a powerful thing. And so up until this stage of Acts in our series, the evangelism has been very ad hoc. Just wherever they go, they just share about Jesus. Wherever they're scattered to, they just keep telling people about Jesus. But from this point in the book of Acts onwards, we see the unveiling of the missionary strategy of the early church. And their strategy was to send people to plant churches in places where there is great opportunity for gospel growth. And so today we're looking at mission through church planting. Recently I had a conversation with a friend of mine from a local church. In the course of our conversation, they said to me, uh, have you heard that Crossway's moving into the area? They're coming to Berwick. I already knew that. I caught up with Bill Malcolm, their, their campus pastor, and it's exciting that they're moving into this region. But as we continued the conversation, it became clear that my Christian brother wasn't particularly excited about the moving into this area. And he said, we already have enough churches in this area. And then he looked at me and he said, you must be frustrated that they're moving into your region. And the first thing I thought is, how is this my region? I thought this is God's region. God's placed us here for a purpose, but this is not my region. It's not our region. It's God's region. And the second thing I did is I acted dumb. I, I have a good dumb face. And I put on my dumb face, usually when Kim asks me about vacuuming or something like that. Put on my dumb face. And I said to him, oh, is everyone in this area saved? And he said, no. I said, well, until they are, I couldn't care less. So they can plant on the block across the road. And I don't care. In fact, I'll rejoice. And I'll tell you why. Because we need more churches in this area, more gospel-preaching, Christ-centered churches that are willing to train, equip, release people for the spread of the gospel and for the extension of the kingdom of God. It's an awesome thing. We need to encourage our brothers and sisters and partner with them to have a greater impact. Missiologist Ed Stetzer says this, In the biblical record... We constantly see churches sending people to other churches, starting churches, and checking on how churches are doing. Today we have too many churches checking on churches, but too few churches working together to send people out to plant. That's what a heart set on multiplication does. That's what Great Commission churches do. When the apostles and the disciples heard the Great Commission, we might consider what they did in response. They did not just evangelise, they congregationalised. When the disciples heard the Great Commission, they planted churches, so should we. When the relatively established church at Antioch heard from the Holy Spirit, they sent out Barnabas and Saul, so should we. You see, the key that they said just there, what Ed Stetzer says, is that it was an established church. An established church, when they got to a certain level, like Beaconsfield did when they sent us, they, they sent. Now, I want to just put you at ease today. We're not looking to plant a church in the next 12 months. We're probably not looking to plant a church in the next three or four years. And so you might be wondering, why are we talking about church planting when we're infants? We're two and a bit months old. It's a bit early to talk about that. Well, there's two reasons why we're talking about it this morning. The first one is this, that the passage dictates it. We are centred in the Word of God. And so when the Word of God's talking about something, we need to address what it's talking about. And in this passage, it's talking about church planting. The second reason that we're talking about it today is that from the very start of our church, from the very start of this culture, from the word go, 
We want to have a culture where we are generous, a generous church willing to sacrifice, willing to sow, willing to give of our time and our energy and our resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what these early Christians were in this passage. And today we will see how that all began. And there's two things I want you to see today from this passage that will help us become a church such as the one at Antioch. There are two things that they understood that we need to understand. The first one is that they understood the gospel. That's critical. We need to understand the gospel. The second thing they understood is that they understood the kingdom. And that is pivotal as well. As we look at the passage today, it would be fair to say they got off to a shaky start in understanding the gospel. Verse 19, after Stephen's murder and the scattering of Christians, many fled from Jerusalem and they ended up at Antioch. Now Antioch was about 480 k's north of Jerusalem. Verse 19 says that once they got there, they started spreading the word only among the Jews. It's a pivotal statement right there, only among the Jews. Last week we had Pastor Kim Hammond with us who enjoyed Kim's message. It's a great message. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to jump on the website and listen to it. Funny, inspiring, challenging all at once. But last week he was talking from Acts chapter 10 and he's talking about some of the barriers that we put up between us and people who aren't Christians. And he's talking about the, the barriers that were put up by these people. Barriers of circumcision, you need to be circumcised. Barriers of extra laws, barriers of food conditions. They kept putting up these barriers and it was making it difficult for people to come to know Jesus, to encounter God. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter is convicted in a dream about the barriers he's been putting up and it becomes a pivotal moment in the New Testament where the gospel is opened to the Gentiles. It'd be worth noting that Jesus is brutal on the religious leaders for the very same reason. They were people that put up barriers that kept people from God. Listen to what he says about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. He says, The Pharisees crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. In the same chapter in verse 13, he says, You Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's a powerful visual, isn't it? Jesus came to open the kingdom of heaven for people and the Pharisees are going behind him saying, no, 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 door's shut, we're closed, you're out, we're in. What an insult for them to hear that. In the same chapter in verse 15, he said, you Pharisees, you travel over land and sea for a single convert and then when they become one, you turn them into twice as much a son of hell as you are. Doesn't mix his words, does he? He's talking to the religious people of the day. And what I've noticed over the years is that religious people are always putting up barriers. Always putting up barriers to keep people separated. To keep people away from encountering God. In this passage, the biggest barrier in that particular time was race. We've sort of covered this in the series so far, but the Jews believed that they and they alone were God's chosen people. And anyone outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish nation, they saw as unclean, unworthy, outside the will and plans of God. But we know that it was never meant to be that way. God called the Jews, he chose the Jews, he blessed the Jews in order that they would be a blessing to all nations. But in verse 19, as they scatter persecution, just after they've had the Great Commission, they're still only spreading the word among the Jews. They still hadn't got that the gospel is for all people. 
But thankfully, in verse 20, we see a turning point. Something that shows us that they were starting to understand the true nature of the gospel. It says these words, that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people uh, believed and turned to the Lord. I love this, that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes that they finally see that the gospel is, all, is for all people. It's all-encompassing. People of every race, every gender, every opinion, every background. They remembered the Great Commission and they stepped out and it says the Lord's hand was with them and many were saved. We need to step outside of the four walls. We need to step outside of our mindsets. We have the greatest news ever, that Jesus lived that he died, that he rose again, that he paid the price for the sins of humanity. And when anyone puts their faith in him, they're saved. They have the hope of forgiveness. They have the hope of eternal life. This gospel good news is radically inclusive, radically relevant, no matter who we're trying to reach. You know, I think for too long the church has placed itself on the judgment seat. And we decide who's in and we decide who's out. If you don't look like us, if you don't sound like us, if you don't believe everything we believe, then you're not welcome here. We look at people based on their sexuality, their nationality, their lifestyle, their belief. And we say, well, you've got to believe before you belong. I just don't see that in Jesus' life. They're the same people, the very people that he hung out with, that he found himself in their spaces Sometimes we shut the door in people's faces, but the very same people who Jesus loves and died for. We have this amazing news for all people. When the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with these people? Why does he eat with these tax collectors? Why does he eat with these sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus died on the cross and he died for the very worst of sinners. Jesus wasn't afraid to be in their lives and neither should we be. And so in verse 20, these people started to tear down the walls. They started to remove the barriers. They started to step out of their comfort zone. And it says they started to speak to the Greeks who they saw as far from God and as they loved them and as they shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus, people responded. I'll ask you a question this morning. Do you feel more drawn to someone when they judge you or when they love you? You don't even need to answer the question, do you? We have incredible love that Jesus has given us. There's no barrier. There's no sin. There's no issue in anyone's life that the gospel can't penetrate, that the gospel can't transform. As we journey with pre-Christian people, our job is to share the truth of the truth of the gospel to stand by our convictions and to love them radically and then pray and trust that they will come to know Jesus themselves and that the Holy Spirit will do the convicting and the changing because that's his job, not ours. We go, we sow, he grows. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation to save every person who believes. They understood the gospel. Secondly, they understood the kingdom. Who here has seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory? Most of us have seen Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. It's a bit of a classic. 
You might remember one of the characters. Her name was Veruca Salt. Remember Veruca Salt? She was the kind of teenage girl you would have nightmares about having yourself. If she was your first child, she would probably be your only child. (laughs) Stop right there. She was spoilt, loud, rude, obnoxious, selfish, arrogant, everything you wouldn't want in a child, and yet she finds herself getting a golden ticket and ending up in the chocolate factory. And I would say that she finds herself in an incredible place. Uh, I mean, she's surrounded by chocolate. It's kind of heavenly, isn't it? I don't know what your view of heaven is. Maybe you're going to be on a cloud strumming a harp. Uh, If that's your view of heaven, well, all power to you. My view of heaven is more like a big chocolate factory. And the more chocolate I eat, the whiter my teeth become. And the more chocolate I eat, the more defined my six-pack becomes. And the more chocolate I eat, the more righteous I become in God's eyes. That's kind of my view of eternity. I am only joking, just in case you were wondering. But it would be nice. Veruca Salt finds herself in this heavenly realm, surrounded by so much opportunity, so much blessing, and yet all she wants and all she focuses on is what she can get for herself, hoarding the blessing for just her. There's a scene in the movie where she sings this kind of self-centered song. She says, I want a golden goose, and I want it now. Cream and donuts, fruitcake with no nuts, so good you could go nuts, give it to me now. I want the world. I want the whole world. Give it to me now. If I don't get the things I'm after, I'm going to scream. You see, she misses the great opportunity around her. And there are so many Christians and so many churches that do exactly the same. Jesus said the kingdom's here. It's present. It's available for everyone who would call on my name. But instead of trying to build this glorious kingdom by embracing, loving, sharing the gospel with people, they focus on building their own little kingdom. Make it into an us versus them thing. Comparing themselves to other churches. Hoarding for themselves. Becoming territorial. They never send. They never leave. They never go. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. We can't claim to understand the kingdom. And then respond with stinginess, territorialism and holding on to people and resources. The kingdom by very nature is open-handed. It's abundantly generous with what God has given us. The kingdom calls us to the most extravagant kind of generosity to lay down our very lives for the gospel. That's the call of every Christian. We need to understand that what I have is not mine, it's his. What we have is not ours, it's his. And so we need to be open-handed rather than tight-fisted with all that he's giving us. I love this passage because we see kingdom generosity lived out. And it's lived out primarily through the sending of people. I'm not going to pretend that if we send people from this church, it's going to be easy. It's difficult. It's hard releasing people from community. If we are a community that becomes genuine, as I pray we will, it'll be a community where we love one another deeply. We'll become like family as we journey together. And gospel goodbyes are very difficult. I think mums understand this more than most. Most mums grieve when their children leave home. Now, you might be sitting there this morning thinking, uh uh-uh. If you met my kid, the moment they walked out the door, we cracked the champagne, party time, big lock on the front door, you're not coming back, you're gone, stay out. That might be you. I said most parents grieve when their children leave home, most mums. And I'd like to think, my mum's not here today, so I have license to exaggerate a little bit. I'd like to think that my mum grieved when I left home. When my two brothers left, that was party time. But when I left, 
she grieved. And I'm picturing that for the first year, she cried herself to sleep every night. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if from time to time she still cries herself to sleep because I'm not at home anymore. And this is our little secret, by the way. Don't mention it next week when she's back. But I'm pretty sure she grieved when I left home. I've got to say, I was mildly disappointed when I went back home after you know, a few weeks to see how my, home, my, my room was going. I was expecting some sort of shrine-like activity, maybe a photo of Luke and some burning candles or something like that, only to notice that my little brother had moved into my room and his room had become a guest room. No photos, no candles. Maybe she didn't grieve as much as I thought she did. But I think deep down, even though it's difficult for parents and for mums to release their children, I think deep down we know that it's the right thing, that we have to release them for the good of society and for the good of our own sanity. That they need to start their own families. That they need to make their own way. That they need to contribute to society in their own way as well. And so after years of training and developing and sowing into them, we release them to go. Maybe at 20 years of age, maybe 25 years of age. I mean, Lenny's almost three and we're starting to have the conversation. What age, mate? What age do you think you'll be leaving? And the last kid, you know, we can start to relax. 18 maybe. Uh, he just... Does it? He just ignores me, basically. <laughs> but it's natural and it's healthy to release after they've been developed. And it's the same with church. I remember listening to Matt Chandler from the Village Church in Texas, a great preacher. He tells the story of how when he started pastoring at the Village Church, his best mate was on staff with him. And they did everything together. And their kids were, were close, best friends. But after journeying for a few years, it became clear that God was calling his mate to plant another village church over the other side of the country. And you see, he'll never forget that day when they backed out of the driveway for the last time. His wife and his kids were weeping as they moved on to a different place. Gospel goodbyes are difficult. Sending people is difficult, but it's what we're called to do. Kim and I have had a few of these moments already where we've had to leave houses, where kids have moved from school on a number of occasions, where we've had to leave people we love. But each time we've done that, we've seen God open up new opportunities to reach new people. If we're just thinking here and now in this life, it makes no sense. But when we're thinking eternally, it makes complete sense as we go. And one day it'll be worth it when we stand before Jesus and with us there are people that God has used us to reach to see saved, and we'll stand there that day rejoicing. In the New Testament, they sent people because they were more concerned with the eternal kingdom than they were with this temporary life. And so we see in this passage, first of all, Jerusalem sent Barnabas north up to Antioch. In verse 22, it says, News reached the church in Jerusalem about everything that was happening in Antioch, and they were thrilled, so they sent Barnabas up to check out what was going on. Now, what makes this so good is that in Acts chapter 4, we learn about Barnabas and we know what his nickname is. His nickname is that he was the son of encouragement. And so the church of Jerusalem, they grabbed their number one encourager and they send him up to Antioch to encourage and strengthen the church there. This is kingdom thinking. There's no rivalry. There's no criticism. There's no jealousy. There's no insecurity. They just send Barnabas up there. And in verse 23, we read what happens as he visits this fledgling church plant. It says, When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I love this. He gets up there and he goes, Wow, 
Look what Jesus is doing in this place. He's transforming this place. There's a church forming. Yeah, it's not my church, but I rejoice at what God's doing in this place. It's so good that he ends up staying up there. And it says that many were brought to the Lord. After a season of incredible growth, he decides he can't do it all himself. So he goes up north to um, a place called Tarsus. And he finds Saul. And Saul was there, the church in Tarsus, encouraging, strengthening people. And then after a little while, Tarsus decided to send Saul south to Antioch as well. So we've got Barnabas coming up north to Antioch. We've got Saul being sent down south to Antioch. And then for the next year, these two great men of God pastor the church there. And it says, for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Saul and Barnabas minister in Antioch. And then a year later in chapter 13, where the church is booming under the leadership of these two amazing men, it said they prayed and they fasted and then they laid hands on, guess who? Saul and Barnabas. And they sent them out to go to the ends of the earth. Now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius, Manian, And Saul, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on this passage said it's perhaps worth noting that the two men who were to be released for what we should nowadays call missionary service were the two most eminent and gifted leaders in the church. And yet their colleagues laid their hands on them and sent them away with blessing and goodwill. They sent away their brightest and their best, the men that had grown this church so significantly. This is what we call kingdom generosity. No fussing about who's going and staying. No talking about what we're going to lose. No us versus them activity. In fact, after they plant all these churches, they come back through them all and encourage them in what they're doing. This is kingdom living. This is kingdom generosity. Why? Because they understand how the kingdom works. The planting of the church in Antioch is probably the most important moment in church planting history. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Antioch became the first genuine missionary sending church. Unfortunately, Jerusalem didn't. They became increasingly insular and eventually disappeared. But this Antioch congregation was used by God to reach the world by living missional lives and by planting churches. We have a choice. What sort of church are we going to be? Are we going to be tight-fisted? Are we going to try and build our kingdom or are we going to be open-handed? releasing people for the kingdom of God. I'm going to encourage each of you to be praying and thinking and asking the Holy Spirit about what he may be challenging you and prompting you to do now or in the future. For many of you, it'll be mission in the local community through your everyday lives as God uses you to impact people. But for others, God may lead you to be sent and to go for the sake of the gospel to see people saved and to see his kingdom extended. And so what's the application for us today? The application is that we need to be people who are willing to go, willing to leave, willing to be sent for the gospel. We need to be people who are open-handed, people who are generous, people who are willing to equip, to train and to release people for the glory of God. 
I hope and pray that we will be a church that understands the gospel and that understands the kingdom and that one day we will stand before Jesus and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this account of the first church planning endeavour, Jerusalem sending people to Antioch, Antioch growing, exploding and planting hundreds of churches. Lord, we thank you for leaders such as Saul, Barnabas and others that were willing to go, to leave and to be used by you in extraordinary ways. Lord, I pray that we become a church that are open-handed, that are generous. Lord, I pray that one day we'll stand before you and we'll see the fruit of what we've done as instead of being tight-fisted, we're open-handed and say, Lord, they're not our people, they're yours. And so, Lord, I pray that you challenge each one of us. Even this week, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to say? Who do you want us to connect with? But even more than that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to always be open to whatever you ask us to do. And when we feel that sense that you're leading us to do something big, Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to step out to trust you for the glory of God and for the salvation of people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.